The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson is one of the most sought-after speakers in the Jewish world today, lecturing to Jewish and non-Jewish audiences on six continents and in 40 states. He is the dean of theyeshiva.net and is the first rabbi to have given the keynote address to the U.S. military chaplains and to the 34,000 employees of the National Security Agency. He will now present a lecture entitled, The Case for Marriage. It is no secret, my dear friends, that despite all of our technological advancements, despite the blessings of progress that have dominated our society in recent times, despite the fact that we have made progress in so many areas in the last century, more than progress that has been made over thousands of years, despite the blessings of all the revolutions, that created new levels of communication and created the global bedroom through the computer and the internet, the cyberspace revolution, the advances in medicine, in science, in biology, in psychology, in treating children with disabilities, physical or mental, etc. In the one issue of the marital institution, we have not made that progress, if anything, to the contrary. You take two adults who are otherwise successful and mature, and we have a hard, hard time keeping them together in one home, getting along with each other respectfully, with mutual camaraderie and love. In fact, more and more, People opt for a single life. Sometimes it's due to disappointment or due to apathy or due to other reasons. But today there is a need for the case of marriage. It seems like the only ones who are very passionate about getting married are gay couples. They are screaming, we want to get married, we want to... And when we say, hey... You could still marry a woman. You know, it's not illegal for a man and woman to marry. Over there, there's more apathy. Apathy to marriage. It's funny, but it's not so, it's not so funny. I don't know if you know, but this past year marks, in all of American history, the lowest birth rate. In all of American history, this past year, the lowest birth rate ever. So it's about marriage, it's about having children, and uh, the reasons are not so complicated. Marriage can be very stressful. In fact, the single greatest factor behind divorce is marriage. <laughs> so if you want to eliminate all divorce, the first thing to do is don't get married. 
If you don't get married, it's very hard to get divorced. You know, they tell the anecdote about the old woman who comes to a cemetery, stands in front of a tombstone, and screams, Why did you have to die? A young man approaches her and says, Who died? She can't answer. She is just overtaken by grief and emotion. Why did you have to die? She speaks to the tombstone. And the young man says, Please share with me who died. Was it your husband? Was it your best friend? Was it a sibling? Was it, heaven forbid, a child? But she can't speak. Why did you have to die? Finally, he says, just tell me, who, who, who is it that died? And she says, my husband's first wife. There was once a woman who saw an ad in the classified section of the New York Times. We are looking for an expert to pick lemons, to harvest lemons. She needs a job. She calls the number. She applies. The man tells her, you know, picking lemons is not an easy task. It requires experience. Have you ever harvested lemons? Have you ever picked lemons? She says, of course, I've been married three times. <laughs> I sure know how to pick a lemon. But in all sincerity, I need not elaborate to the audience sitting in front of me about the challenges of marriage, the headaches of marriage. I once asked the Jewish comedian Jackie Mason, who repeats many of my jokes, and I said, Jackie, in a personal conversation, I said, do you regret never getting married? He is a single bacher, a, a bachelor. And he said, Rabbi Jacobson, no. I said, why not? He said, Jackie Mason style, my father once said, marriage is an institution. I don't want to be institutionalized. I said, Jackie, but what about somebody to say Kaddish for you? So he said, well, once I'm dead, I don't care about somebody saying Kaddish for me because I'm dead. And when I'm alive, I'm not dead, so nobody has to say Kaddish. So it works perfectly. But we live in a country in which we have created a culture of divorce. And what I mean by a culture of divorce is people have always gotten divorced. I mean, Judaism allows it. The Torah discusses it in the book of Deuteronomy. There are the laws of get, of divorce. So thousands of years ago, it was always an option within the Jewish faith. Even when Christians outlawed it, in Judaism it was always an option. Yet what has happened today in the last 30 years is we don't only get divorced. We created a culture around divorce. I'm not going to say it's the in thing to do, but sometimes it feels that way. It is so rampant, it is so prevalent, it is so part of the lifestyle. Somebody told me, what's the big deal? It's like changing jobs. It's like changing homes. And then somebody once told me, it's like changing suits. I'm like, whoa, 
That's a new one, huh? You go out and you get rid of your old suit and you put on a new suit. A guy once came to a rabbi. He says, I want to get divorced. The rabbi said, why? He says, it's very simple. I went to the store to purchase a BMW. I came home with a Buick. The rabbi told him, the problem is you were looking for a car, not for a wife. The two are very different. We live in a generation where stress in marriage is so rampant. Where even people who seemingly have good marriages often struggle terribly. The amount of animosity and negative energy within so many marital situations is profound. And hence, in the statistics, 50% of first marriages end up in divorce, 63% of second marriages. That means every other wedding I attend might end in divorce. That means sometimes every other student I address in high school or college is often a child of a of a broken or fragmented family? Do we understand the ramifications of the fact that more than one million children each year in the United States of America are added to the list of broken families? What are the ramifications for the culture? There were two myths that have been propagated and have been uh, internalized by so many good people that I think have uh, contributed to creating this culture of divorce. Myth number one is that children are happy when parents are happy. And since you will be happier without that shmagegi, you assume that the children will also be happier without him. That's not necessarily the case. For you, he's a shlamazel. For them, he's a father. Myth number two, divorce has short-term effects. Six months, seven months, eight months. It's not the case. It has sometimes lifelong effects. Don't underestimate its power. Sometimes divorce saves lives, especially when there's abuse, when there's terrible, terrible dysfunctionality. I'm sure everybody sitting here knows of cases, sometimes very personal cases, where divorces simply saved lives when there was terrible, terrible, terrible things going on in the home. But it's not always the case. Very, very often it's simply that we don't have the courage or the know-how or the willingness to really make it, make it work. So what tonight I want to do, albeit briefly, is explain some perspectives and paradigms of the Torah that relate to marriage. They say that when uh, Henry Kissinger became the Secretary of State of the U.S., Golda Meir was the Prime Minister of Israel, and she penned a message to him, and she said, Mr. Kissinger, I look forward to a very close working relationship with you because, of course, Henry Kissinger was a Jew, is a Jew, a German Jew, who served as the Secretary of State of the U.S. And Kissinger wrote to Golda Meir and said, I have to state to you my priorities. Number one, I am an American citizen. Number two, I am Secretary of State of the U.S. Number three, I happen to be Jewish. To which Golda Meir, a clever woman, responds, that is exactly why I look forward for such a close working relationship with you, because you see, here in Israel, we read from right to left. And I would say when it comes to the question of dating, relationships, marriage, intimacy, there are two ways of reading it, from right to left, left to right. Right to left, I call the Jewish paradigms. Left to right, I call the secular paradigms. 
And I think it's important to at least educate ourselves with some of the paradigms of right to left, with some ideas of Torah about marriage, because the fact is that probably the strongest unit that held our people together, strong and vibrant despite endless persecution and tremendous horror, was the family unit. The marriage, the family, the relationships, the children. And therefore I think there is some wisdom that the Jewish people have developed over 4,000 years of survival and thriving that can shed light on the case for marriage, on the meaning for marriage, on the Torah's perspective on sexuality, intimacy, dating, courtship, marriage, divorce, children, etc. And we will touch at least on a few, a few of these items. Question number one. Why should one get married? It used to be, a few decades ago, it was a very practical reason. If you wanted to experience the joy of sexuality, you usually had to get married. Fathers didn't just allow their teenage daughters to go out at night. I mean, of course, you can cheat and, uh, you know, play, uh, play, uh, play it according to your own beat. But conventional, conventional behavior was you get married and then you can enjoy each other. If you wanted romance, you wanted love, you wanted children, this is why people got married. Today, I need not tell you, you need not marriage to achieve any of the above. Sexuality, <laughs> marriage can ruin it. Romance? Marriage can only have it go downward. Love? Huh? Better if there's some space. Even children. A man just told me the other day, said Rabbi Jacobson, give me one good reason why I should get married. I can have sex when I want. I can enjoy myself. I can enjoy friendships. I can enjoy romance. Why do I have to? enter into a commitment and covenant of marriage. After four and a half years, we get divorced. And then I have to split my estate and my income and my money with her and fight in court. Why? For what? For whom? Alas, in the 21st century, we have created solitary confinement. Not in prison, but in freedom. I will remain in my world, you will remain in your world, and we'll connect when we're in the mood. That's the value of dating. The value of dating is, I'm not in the mood of you, and I say, not tonight. See you tomorrow. Not tomorrow will be the next day. I drop you off at your place. I go to my place, and all is dandy and good, and I don't have somebody preaching to me how disgusting I am. How I don't know how to run a house. What a moron I am. Marriage creates stress. Marriage creates disputations. So people ask the question, why even, why even consider it? I mean, for a tax discount? Today there are other alternatives. You can donate to Chabad and get a tax discount too. 501c3. There's another question, and that is, even if you think you should get married, or you want to get married, especially when your mother is nudging you and saying, I don't want to die 
before I see a grandchild. The question is how to go about it. Some tips to make it easier. How to make it happen. So I want to address these two questions. There are two ways of defining the meaning of life without getting too philosophical. But one is the meaning of life is ultimately for me to actualize my potential, to be as comfortable as I can be, to be as happy and content and successful as I can be. And to have all of my needs, realistic needs or perceived needs, met. In this case, marriage could become very stressful. In fact, in 50% of the cases it won't work. If there is natural chemistry, if you're both mild-mannered people, it may work. But in 50% of the cases, people are so different. People have different idiosyncrasies. There's going to be a lot of stress, a lot of strife, a lot of struggle. In the Jewish perception, for a person to truly actualize their potential, one must transcend themselves and create space for somebody outside of themselves. Because it's only in that experience, when we truly create space for the other, that we achieve the ultimate peak and zenith of the human experience. A man was created in the image of God. Why did God create the world? God was a perfect bachelor prior to creation. Tall, handsome, rich, skinny, slim, a couple of summer homes, a private airplane, a private boat, had his own Cuban cigars, chilled out, had everything at his possession. God was the quintessential perfect bachelor. And a perfect bachelor is everything, as you know. Ask any perfect bachelor and he'll tell you. There's only one flaw in the life of the perfect bachelor. And that is, he's not married. And according to the present laws of the Supreme Court, you can't get married to yourself. That may change in the future. After all, there is an argument for getting married to yourself. We all have split personalities. We all have two souls. Um, less fighting, etc. But at the present moment, you have to marry somebody else. You can't get married to yourself. So the perfect bachelor lacks that one quality, and that is, for marriage, you need a relationship with somebody outside of you. God was the perfect bachelor. And because there was only God, he had no relationship with anybody outside of him. So he created the world in order to get married, in order to create a relationship with otherness, and hence humanity was created. And the first thing God had to do in order to allow for that marriage, the Kabbalists say, is a very charged word. It's called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is not a Chinese dish. It's a Kabbalistic term which means self-withdrawal, self-suspension. God had to create a void, an empty space, a vacuum, if you will, in which His infinite presence was not manifested to allow room for you and I to experience ourselves as independent human beings and hence forge a voluntary, volitional relationship. So the objective of creation was God wanted to get married. 
What does it then mean? I was created in the image of God. God did not want to get married because he was missing something. Perfection lacks nothing. What, why God wanted to get married was because he was not missing anything. And that was his only imperfection. His only imperfection was perfection. His only imperfection was that he was incapable of growth. He was incapable of camaraderie, of a relationship, because when you're perfect, you need nobody, you need nothing. And God chose to be in a relationship so that he can give. And receive. And he made himself vulnerable. So when we say man was created in God's image, what does that mean? It means that for me to be fully human, I must give. For me to be fully human, I must suspend myself and create a space in which my ego is not present and in which I allow room for you. It's in the space that I create for thou in which I find the divine in whose image I was created. God created an empty space in order for allow us to exist. He shrunk himself. He removed himself from the scene because he wanted to give. I cannot fully experience my humanness in the image of God if my life is only about me meeting my needs. I reach my peak psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually when I enter into a space in which I don't exist and which I allow you to exist. There is no institution that demands of us that type of tzimtzum like the institution of marriage. Because friendship is ultimately on my terms. And philanthropy is on my terms. And kindness is on my terms. But when I enter into the covenant of marriage with somebody else, I am challenged day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, to create space for thou. I have once shared with you, there's the biblical story that captures this idea wonderfully. It's the story of Jacob, who falls in love with a woman named Rachel, whose father-in-law deceives him, and the night of the wedding puts under the veil her sister Leah. And Jacob ends up marrying the wrong woman. He marries Leah. He wakes up in the morning and he sees it's the wrong woman. He asks his father-in-law, why did you deceive me? His father-in-law says, we can't marry off the, older, the younger before the older. He says, I want to marry Rachel. He says, work for another seven years, you'll marry Rachel. How do we understand that story? Do you know that every Jew alive today comes from that marriage? Maybe this is where our dysfunction comes from. The founding father and mothers of the Jewish family got married by mistake. Jacob did not want to marry Leah. Most Jews today are either from the tribe of Judah or Joseph. Judah comes from Leah. Joseph comes from Rachel. The answer is, in every marriage, there are two women, even if you marry one. In every marriage, there are two husbands, even if you marry one. Rachel is the woman of your dreams. 
Leah is the woman you end up with. Rachel is the spouse you anticipate. Leah is the spouse you end up with. We all wake up one morning and we say, it's Leah. What do I do? Do I call my lawyer? The Torah says, no, 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 no. It's the Leah that was meant for you. But God knew that if He would have shown you Leah at the first date, you would have said, bye-bye, love. Go find happiness with somebody else. So during the dating, God only shows you Rachel. And then you get married, and after a month or a year or ten years, you discover Leah, and now you're in the marriage. And if you're both mature, you realize that it was the Leah that was meant for you because it's the Leah qualities of your spouse, husband or wife that challenge you to become the person you're capable of becoming, that challenge you to create space for otherness. And what is the mystique, drama, blessing, and challenge of marriage, if not creation of space for otherness? Nietzsche said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. Rachel is your love of your spouse based on your version of your spouse. Leah is actually creating real space for your spouse. That is why at every Jewish wedding, the groom veils the bride. Have you ever seen it? It's called the Badekin. Why? I would suggest that during every wedding, the groom should unveil the bride so he can make sure that it's his wife and not his mother-in-law. He can make sure it's his wife and not Hillary. Or Queen Elizabeth. Yet, under the chuppah, when you place that ring on her finger, arguably the most important moment, that moment you're getting married, you don't see her, she does not see you. For all you know, she can be somebody else. Answer, my dear friends. The answer is open your hearts. When I veil my bride on the wedding night, I'm giving a message. And the message is, I know that most of you I do not see. I know that even that which I see is only a tip of the iceberg. I know that there will be layers of your identity that will emerge to the surface in a year, in five years, in 25 years. And I am committed to love not only the part that I see presently, but also the parts that I don't see. I am creating space not only for Rachel, but also for Leah. And that is why the Kabbalists say we use a ring. A ring is a graphic image of the tzimtzum, God's infinite light filled the entire concept of space and time. And then he withdrew his light, and the light now encircles a vacuum, an empty space in which our identity can be present. And that is the ring where the man tells the wife, I have created an empty space in my ego where I am creating room for your identity, for your mishagasin, for your idiosyncrasies, for your insecurities, for the totality of your being, for the good, for the bad, and the ugly. The man towards the wife and the wife towards the man, the wife towards the husband. And if I'm not ready to marry Leah, I'm not ready for marriage. If you're only ready to marry somebody who you will love based on your version of them, you're not ready for marriage, you're ready to marry yourself. Stay married to yourself. In order to marry a spouse, you have to get divorced. Which is why in the Talmud, in the order of the tractates, which tractate comes first? 
The tractate about divorce or the tractate about marriage? The tractate about divorce, Gittin and then Kiddushin. Rebainai Shalaylam! First I want the tractate that legislates marriage, then the tractate that legislates divorce. The divorce. The answer is open your hearts. If you want to get married, you first have to get divorced. You know who you have to divorce? You have to divorce yourself. You have to say, I'm ready to create space for you. Not on my terms, but on your terms. You cannot expect to fit your spouse into your iPhone or your Palm Pilot, or your Blackberry, you know? A woman once told me, uh, her husband, her, 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 her guy, her boyfriend proposed. And then uh, she said, yes, fine, great. And then she said, so let's, it was, I think, uh, it was the end of the summer, August. She said, so let's get married in June. And he looked at his calendar. And he said, June is too busy. And she asked me, and I said, you know, if, if there are appointments that are more important than his marriage, I would be very, very cautious. If you think your marriage is going to be another appointment on your iPhone, you're not ready for a relationship. You're ready for a relationship with yourself. So go, enjoy yourself. You're not ready for marriage. A relationship of marriage is the commitment for life to create space in the core of my being, allowing you to enter into my heart of hearts, where me becomes we. But for an N to become a W, it has to be turned inside out. For me to become we, I have to turn myself inside out and outside in. I have to make a symptom. And that symptom is not easy. It's very mature. It's very real. Which brings me to point number two. And this is once I'm married, what is the priority of marriage in my life? Is it just another task? Or it is the purpose of my existence? And here I ask you a question. And I'm going to be blunt with you, okay? You know I'm pretty blunt, but I'm going to be even blunter now. Do you know the divorce rate in the Orthodox community. So I'll tell you, in the ortho, especially the ultra-Orthodox community, the divorce rate is approximately between 7 and 9 percent. Versus 50, 60, 70 percent in the larger secular community. Now most people will say, of course Rabbi Jacobson, Orthodox women don't have careers, they're frightened to get divorced because who's going to support them? Besides the fact, Orthodox women have ter terrible social pressure. The social, the community, the family says, you have to be married, you have to have 21 kids. Okay, 14. Okay, 9. In the secular community, are the priorities, you know? If, 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 you're a, if you're a skilled child, a doctor. If you're slow, a lawyer. 
if you're, if you're very slow, an accountant. If you're retarded, a rabbi. Different priorities. Of course, there's no divorce. Of course, the divorce rate is very small. It takes tremendous courage for a husband and a wife to get divorced. In the secular community, the women are educated. They have degrees. She doesn't need him. That's why there's 50, 60% divorce. There's no social phobias about, about divorce. Now, I'll be pretty objective with you. I know the ultra-Orthodox community very, very well. Not only did I grow up in an ultra-Orthodox community, I spend much of my time counseling, teaching, lecturing, communicating, dealing with different types of Jews from all backgrounds and walks of life, and many, many ultra, ultra, ultra-Orthodox, even Hasidic, strimal Jews. Granted, those factors exist. Many of the women don't have degrees, granted. There is a very strong emphasis on family. But if the difference would be 15%, I can, I, can, I can acknowledge that. When you see a difference of 40% in divorce rate, any objective, serious scholar knows that just to dismiss it, because women are not, are not all graduates of university, besides the fact that plenty of women have careers, but to blame it completely on the social dynamics in Orthodox communities is simply intellectually dishonest and untrue. Although that is a factor, no question. But that's not the reason for this great disparity. What is the reason? There are many, but I'm going to tell you two. Two. The first thing in this is very important to understand. How do we view the value of marriage? From a Torah perspective, marriage is not a nice, cute, important, valuable thing. Marriage is... Marriage is more than a mitzvah. Marriage is one of the most important goals of creation. It's one of the key purposes of human creation from the Torah perspective. Because in Genesis, when God creates Adam, what does he say? Lo adam levado. It's not good for man to be alone. Es lo ezer kenegdo. He needs marriage. So the Jews, inspired by Torah values, doesn't see marriage as a luxury or as a nuisance. Although he or she has that experience as well. But above and all, they see it as a sacred goal, a divine mandate. Something that's worth sacrificing for and working towards with every fiber of your being. Because through that, you will fulfill the purpose for which God created you. And they are educated that way. So they have that attitude towards their marriages. That's a priceless attitude. Because what that means is, not that people will tolerate abuse more. Nobody should tolerate abuse. And sacrifice doesn't mean you should become a martyr in your marriage when your husband is an abusive, alcoholic, narcissistic, addictive gambler and codependent. 
Torah does say there is divorce. What it does mean is that if everybody is ready to work on themselves and mature, and we all have to mature, both parties are inspired by a value that this is the quintessential priority in life, more than money, more than a career, more than climbing the ladder in Wall Street or Madison Avenue or downtown Dallas or Los Angeles. More even than other skills, which are also very, very important. Your marriage can't be the only factor in your life. You have to recognize yourself as an individual. But they see it as a tool to connect to God, as a tool to fulfill their purpose in creation, which is to become in God's image. And God created the world because He wanted marriage. He wanted to create space for somebody else. And we achieve that through the institution of marriage. That is why their marriages have such longevity. When you have such a commitment towards the institution of marriage, you see it as sacred. Disagreements are just that, disagreements. Which brings me to point number two. And point number two, and I want you to understand this, when they get married, divorce is not an option. And I'll explain to you what I mean. We all know that divorce is always an option. We all know that the woman or man, even if they're very orthodox, can do things that will ultimately end in divorce. But that's not part of the equation of marriage. When I marry my wife, the mindset that I have and she has is, we are married forever. Period. No ifs, buts, whens. If there's a crisis, we'll work it out. If there are issues, we'll work it out. We date long enough to figure out that this is a person, not who is perfect, but it's a person with whom I can work out issues and problems. Marriage is for life. You know what happens? When a woman knows that in her husband's mind, she is his eternal partner, she will trust. She will allow her heart to melt in his embrace. She will allow herself to become completely vulnerable, and that will elicit the most profound love. When there is always an exit door available, we tend to use it. If when we get married, we both know that tomorrow morning we're getting divorced, if there's any problem. If not tomorrow, next year, we will end up getting divorced because there's so many differences. And how can I really trust you? The very fact that you know we're not getting divorced allows to, us to create a climate of absolute trust where people can completely melt in the other person's embrace and hence experience a new level of love which will eliminate the need for divorce. And this is what many people don't realize. The very option of divorce is what creates divorce. The lack of the option is what solidifies a marriage. Point number three is the structure of Jewish, Jewish life is very conducive for a functional relationship. For example, Shabbat. Knowing that your husband once a week at dinner will not text, will not email, will not watch TV. What a blessing. The separation known as family purity, which keeps sexuality fresh and vibrant, eliminates so many challenges and problems of taking somebody else's body for granted. Because according to Torah law, you probably know, there's the time every month during the cycle when there's no physical intimacy. So when the woman comes back from the mikveh after that period is over, it's like the night of the wedding. 
There's a freshness nobody's taken for granted. And during that time when there is physical separation, they have to work out issues verbally rather than cover it up through a good romantic experience in the bedroom. They actually, you teach your man to talk, and you know it's not easy for men to talk. We love climbing into caves and staying there. So I said three things. Number one, marriage is not a priority. It's the priority. It's a divine priority. It's sacred. Number two, it's for life. Number three, the institution of Jewish life. I finally make one more point, and then I open the floor for questions, objections, and your brilliant and emotional insights. And no taboos, everybody could say whatever is on their mind. And the last question is, so how do I find one? So how do I find one? We never find matches, trust me. God finds them. Because if I would look at any couple and ask, how in the world did they come together? I don't know. Every marriage is a miracle. One plus one, according to sophisticated mathematics, equals two. I believe. Marriage says one plus one equals one. That's supernatural. Every marriage is a miracle. And we find our match with the grace of God. What we have to do is, when we're looking for a match, we have to use the natural methods. We have to increase in a mitzvah in order to create within ourselves a vessel for more light of God. And then we have to go for the search. And the right moment, the right time, the right person will show up. However... People date forever for no reason. Here is the fact. You don't need a date for longer than six months to know that he's not the right person or she's not the right person for you. Within six months, if you're intelligent, if you're normal, six months is enough to tell you not. If you think maybe yes, okay, give it a little more time. But people think that after nine years, they'll figure it out. No, it doesn't work that way. The person you date is never the person you marry, trust me, even if you live in the same apartment. On the contrary, marriage works not because you know everything about the other person. Marriage works because you respect the parts of the person that you don't know. I want you to remember that. That's what makes a marriage work. What makes a marriage work is respect for mystery, respect for otherness. The fact that I don't know everything about you, I don't have to know everything about you. I don't even want to know everything about you. You're just too complicated for me. Anyway, besides, what can men understand about women anyway? There's no way men can understand women's brains. It's a fact. Women's brains are just too developed for men. It's a fact. You know what I mean? Huh? You know, a man, most men's brain you put into a peanut and you shake the peanut and you could still hear it. You know, a woman's brain is different. So it's about respecting the otherness of a person. Don't date forever. But there's also something else. And this is important. You know, uh, 
the other day my, my computer broke. And you know, I believe in eternal relationships. So I had this computer for many, many years. We developed a tremendous, uh, tremendous relationship. I'm not going to get too graphic. But we spent, we spent complete nights with each other. Uh, we c- complete nights with each other. My wife, you say, you're married to the computer. And then my computer died. It died. And I needed a new computer. So I said goodbye, Yiskadal, Yiskadash. Uh, uh, that computer has served me well, although in old age the computer became a little senile, it became far virused, it, it became very slow and, and, and clumsy, and, and I had a lot of sorrows. But my loyalty to my computer was unique. I, I, I stuck with it, I nurtured it, I, I, I waited for it to breathe its last death, death, I gave it a dignified burial, and then I went to the store to find a replacement. Now, how do you find a replacement for your first love? It's not easy. It's not easy. And it wasn't easy. But you know what? I could not find that same computer. But I came out of the store with a computer. You know why? Because I needed one. And therefore, I knew that I'm going to come out of the store with a computer, even though I could not find the perfect computer. Computer, When you need a car, you're never going to find the perfect model for the perfect price. But you desperately need a car, you come out with a car. And when you need a home, you're never going to find the perfect, impeccable, flawless home, unless you live where I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> but I need a home. You know what? You settle. You don't settle on essentials. Right? You, don't, you know what your essentials are. Suddenly when it comes to marriage, everybody is waiting for the perfect model. The perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect computer. Welcome. It doesn't exist. And you're also not perfect. Trust me. You don't believe me? Ask your future mother-in-law. Who's your future mother-in-law? I don't know. Ask any mother-in-law. She might be the future mother-in-law. Ask. You're not perfect either. It depends what type of priority marriage is. If it's a real priority, if you need it as much as you need a computer, you'll find it. But what if you don't think you really need a computer? Then you say, if I find the perfect model, I'll buy it. If not, I won't you'll never find the perfect model. The reason we come out with a computer is because we know I have no choice. I need it to survive. When somebody really feels God wants me to get married and I'm going to do whatever I can, in the majority of cases, you will find. But if you say, I'm not sure, but if I find the perfect model, then you'll never find a perfect model you'll never be able to get married. This is not about compromising your priorities. It's about knowing what are the essentials. What are the things you really need in that computer? And not expecting the perfect model. We compromise when we buy a car, a house, and a computer. When we marry, we compromise. But it's not a compromise that kills us. We're not compromising our souls, our essentials. Rather, we're recognizing the fact that nobody is perfect. And as long as we are accountable, we can live a happy life. 
What you're looking in a partner is not for perfection. What you're looking in your partner, for, what you're looking for in your partner is accountability. You don't need a man or a woman who will be perfect. Trust me, you don't want perfect men. They're very dangerous. What you want is somebody accountable. Somebody who knows how to say, I'm sorry. And somebody who will hold your hand and not run away when the roller coaster goes downhill. Not run away when challenges come, but will remain present. We'll be able to say, I'm sorry. We'll be able to take responsibility. And we'll be able to look at life as work in progress. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you for remembering to applaud. It took you a second over there. And I was starting to doubt myself. So I, 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 yeah, I understand. And with rabbis generally, I always advise communities not to applaud rabbis because they think that the people want an encore. So it's always better to play safe and just, uh, and just you know, nod your head. Okay, so now let's open the floor to your questions, remarks, objections, alternate speeches, rebuttals, and... Comments, please feel free to bring up anything, no taboos, and everything can be discussed. Please go ahead, speak loud so everybody can hear. My question is, what is the Orthodox opinion on having children, number one, and number two, if a couple cannot have children biologically, is that grounds for divorce? Okay. Part one of the question, what is the Orthodox perspective on having children? Or that perspective on having children is. Just go to any Orthodox house and you'll see exactly what's their perspective on having uh, children. The Orthodox do dedicate a lot of time to study uh, how to deal with terrorists, uh, meaning how to deal with terrorism in the house. Um, they... they, they uh, they cover, um, the truth is, but, but in all sincerity, um, um, I don't like using the word orthodox because it's very divisive, but that's our discussion tomorrow. I'll say from a Torah perspective, um, one of the greatest, greatest blessings in life is the blessing of children. And uh, therefore, people are usually inspired by Torah have that perspective. I mean, throughout, throughout our history, it's our love toward children, I think, that created the people that we are. It's, in Yiddish we have a lovely expression, the Yiddish Mama. You know the Yiddish Mama, the Jewish mother. There's a great song. A Yiddish Mama. You know that song. It's really a very moving tribute to the Jewish mother who, uh, who doesn't just raise a family, who breathes her family who smells where every child is for the next 80 years, who sees even 60-year-old children as still hanging out in her womb. Yes, it becomes obsessive and somewhat neurotic and overbearing, but there's no secret that the, the relationship to children in the Torah-inspired community is, is absolutely legendary. And, and parents are, are just taught to literally do anything for their children. Sometimes it becomes a little... Uh, should I use the word, I don't want to use the word codependent, but sometimes, you know, not everything is always perfectly healthy, but generally that's the attitude. Your second question was, what if a couple cannot have a biological children? Is there room, is that, 
is that grounds uh, for divorce? In a classic Jewish answer, I will tell you yes and no. And what I mean, what I mean by yes and no is as follows. If they want it to be grounds for divorce, it can be grounds for divorce. If they really don't want it to be grounds for divorce, it doesn't have to be grounds for divorce. So Jewish law discusses it a lot. You know, and, uh, and there's this perspective. And, that, and ultimately it boils down, if they want a dispensation, if they want it to be grounds for divorce because one of them or both of them figure out they can have children perhaps with somebody else, or whatever the situation is, it can become grounds for divorce and a very peaceful and civil divorce. And it has happened. But many couples opt for another option. Um, uh, at this conference, they mention a lot the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who you probably know uh, uh, didn't have children and remained married for almost 60 years. And uh, he was an Orthodox Jew. So it's really up to the couple, couple itself because there are different ways of navigating it within Jewish law. Yes. Any other questions? Yes. That's a good question. That's a good, good question. I'll tell you, my mother has told me many things about myself, right? Including that I'm God's exclusive gift to humanity. <laughs> One thing my mother did not tell me was that I am God. So I really don't know. <laughs> I cannot speak to you from heaven. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what God wants from you. Uh, I'm not in the position. I don't think any rabbi is in the position of telling anybody what God wants. If God speaks to you, let me know. Um, uh, but you also want to be careful about that. Um, I can't tell you what God wants from you. I can't tell anybody what God wants from them. What I could present is some of the wisdom that God communicated in the Torah that we then have to apply to our lives according to our circumstances. So I think you want to peer deeply into yourself and, uh, and discuss it with yourself and, and see what really God wants from you in this stage of your life. And I don't think there's one conclusive answer, certainly not one that somebody else can give it, even if he thinks he's a brilliant rabbi. Generally, I am very cautious of rabbis who know too much. You know what I mean? Because those who really know, know how ignorant they are. The more you know, the less you know. The less you know, the more you know, especially in questions like this. Yes? This woman shares with us that she has heard that every person has seven basharts, which means seven possible mothers-in-law. That was a joke. Um, uh, do, you know, 
Do you know that in the Bible, by the way, I love my mother-in-law. You should just know all my jokes about mothers-in-laws because it's not about my mother-in-law. I have the most wonderful, spectacular, stupendous mother-in-law in the world, especially that we live in two different states. No, we have a great relationship. Yes, yes, yes. No, she's not sitting here, but she escorts me wherever I am in my heart of hearts. Um, so my, uh, my mother-in-law. Um, there was a guy, Jethro. You know, Yisro, Jethro in the Bible, he has seven names. And people say, why? And the answer I give is because Jethro had seven daughters and he had to marry them off. And after each wedding, he went bankrupt, so he had to change his name. So that's why Jethro has seven names in the Torah. But in any case, the seven bashertz is, I know a lot of people say it, but it's a little more complicated than that. Let me give you a little bit of a more authoritative uh, statement from the Kabbalistic texts. And that is, we have a soulmate. But that soulmate is not just one conclusive soulmate, because our soul has many different levels. And depending which level of my soul I access, that may determine who is my soulmate. Jacob has two names, Yaakov and Yisrael. Yaakov aspect of Jacob was married to Rachel. The Yisrael aspect of Jacob was married to Leah. So different levels and dimensions of the soul could be, can have different soulmates. How do we know who is our soulmate? Answer. We never know who our soulmate is. There's no piece of parchment that falls down from heaven in the middle of the 99th date and says, thus speaks the Lord. He is your soulmate. Assassinate him. It doesn't work that way. We don't know who our soulmate is. And, and you know, sometimes we go to experts who are, know how to take a lot of money. And they say, oh, I will tell you, you know, when you see this facial feature, that's your soulmate. You know? And, and, and those who know don't say, those who say don't know. That's usually the case. The Jewish way is not by reading palms and looking at faces and waiting for papers to fall down from heaven and tell us who our soulmate was. But it's rather by spending time with somebody, getting to know them to the best of our ability, looking at a few things. Number one, do we share values? Do we share similar values in life? Do we share similar priorities in life? Are we ready to sacrifice for the same ideals? Are we excited about the same goals and objectives? What are our values when it comes to raising a family? When it comes to, to a Jewish way of life? When it comes to questions of morality? When it comes to questions of, of, of soul, of God, of happiness, of, of religion, of Israel, of Judaism, of, of love, of giving? We want to look if the other person has integrity, if there's kindness, most importantly, we want to make sure that when there is a challenge, when there's a disagreement, this is a person who knows how to fight without destroying, who knows how to argue with respect, who knows how to work through issues, who knows how to say, I'm sorry. I want, there will be disagreements, but I want to know enough that this person is somebody I can disagree with in a loving, respectful fashion. Is it our soulmate for sure? I don't know. But if I like this person, of course, and I'm ready for the marital commitment, I go for it. 
And I let God do the rest. Yes. I have a question. You're talking about Jack and Mason and Dr. There is no Torah obligation for her to marry. If there was, I would not shy away from it. I would say the truth. I am not one of the people who just says things to make everybody feel good at the moment and lie about Judaism. I don't do that. I say pork is non-kosher. You know what I mean? Some things are not kosher. Um, if there was such an obligation in the Torah, like there's an obligation on the man to put on tefillin, I would say there's an obligation. Is it a wonderful thing? It's a wonderful thing. Can I tell her this is what God wants from her? I'm not in that position. I'm not God, and God never hired me to be his prophet. What should I tell you? I'm sorry. Yes. I have a comment from our uh, rabbi. I read it uh, a while ago. It made a lot of sense to me. It uh, doesn't seem to make as much sense as some of the people I've talked to about it. Maybe, maybe it was you can make a comment, but me and I'd like you to comment on it for good or bad. He said something to the effect of uh, it, it's much more important or you should focus on loving the marriage more than loving the person. Rabbi Friedman? Yeah. Listen, I get the point, but I also understand why people are uncomfortable with it. If you're dating a woman, right, and you propose to her, and you say, by the way, I'm not sure I love you, but I love marriage. It's like... Go to your rabbi and spend time with him. So that's why people are uncomfortable. What the rabbi did mean, however, let me explain what I think he meant was, he didn't mean you should not love your spouse and it's not important to respect and cherish your spouse. Uh, you want to develop a liking and a love to your spouse, at least on some tangible level. I think what he meant was is that the most important thing is not to say this person is always lovable, and therefore the marriage will survive. Because you know what? Every person has moments when they're not lovable. We all have downers. We all lose ourselves, you know, besides my wife. We all, uh, we all make mistakes. And if the marriage is dependent on you being the perfect partner, it won't survive. However, if we introduce this ingredient, and that is, I love the marriage unconditionally. The institution of marriage is always holy and perfect. Even if we're not living up to it, then it gives the marriage a stability. Very good, so we agree. So I wasn't the rabbi who said it, but you understand why people feel uncomfortable when they don't get it. It's all sometimes about how you say it. You know? When you say, don't love the married partner, love the marriage, it doesn't sound good. I would not repeat it. When you say, when your partner becomes somewhat unlovable, remember that the institution of marriage remains perfect. It remains holy. And that we always honor, that allows us to go through the ups and the downs. Yes? Yeah. When this menstrual cycle ceases, so then... Uh, 
I guess it's demonstrative that the couple has reached a space in their marriage where they can experience intimacy without any limitations. But during the menstrual cycle, the laws of family purity dictate that there's a certain period every month when uh, physical intimacy is not allowed according to Torah law till uh, the woman goes to the mikvah. And of course, when there's pregnancy, and hence there's no cycle, again, these limitations are, are removed. Because these are actually moments in, in life after the cycle when they hit a certain age or during pregnancy when the Torah realized perhaps that there is no need for the physical separation in order to keep the marriage fresh. Yes? Reverend, how would you respond to the young people who say that living together before marriage will increase chances of successful marriage, and also if they say that everybody around them do it? Okay. Uh, how do you respond to young people who say living together before marriage will increase the chances of a good marriage? And of course, she's responding to the question of, you know, according to Jewish law, um, uh, we, we, wait for, we, wait for we wait for marriage in order to have intimacy, but they say it's much better to live together before marriage and experiment with it. Um, the answer, I think, is quite straightforward and simple, and that is in the 1960s there was a sexual revolution. Before the 1960s, even in the Christian world, even in the secular world, even in the non-Jewish world, it was not conventional for men and women, for boys and girls to have sex before marriage, even if they did it confidentially, but it was not, it was not part of the process. After the 1960s, it became part of the process. Everybody experiments before marriage. They sometimes live together for a few years. I would expect that based on the argument of these youngsters, we would see that from the 1960s and on, the quality and longevity of marriages has increased and accelerated because after all, every couple gets to experiment for so many years before marriage. What we have observed is the exact opposite trend. Never has the institution of marriage suffered so miserably as since the 1960s. I would expect at least a 20% increase, at least a 10% increase, at least let it remain on the same plateau. The exact opposite happened. And the truth is that the Torah's wisdom is very, very profound. And I'll be very brief and simple, but use your minds. Sometimes women don't understand this, but men know this very, very well. And that is, the moment I'm dating a woman and sexuality becomes part of the process, most men are not intellectually objective any longer. They're not sober. They are intoxicated by the exciting experience. And what happens is, blinders go up and they do not study and reflect any longer on the other person objectively. They come home, they tell their mother, their mother says, she's not for you. He says, mom, mom, you don't know what you're talking about, he's the greatest guy. And mom says, you're just excited about, about, you know, the body. You, you don't know the person. Nah, 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 nah. They get married. After three years, sexuality gets a little boring. And now you realize that you have to live not just with the person's thighs, but actually with the whole person. And you realize that there are quite a few flaws, and it's not easy. So the halachic point of view is extremely profound, and that is, you retain your objectivity. Don't get drunk on the body. Be sober, be calm, be intellectually sober and really evaluate the person so that when you get married, you're not marrying a body. You're marrying a human being.
who has a body and a soul and a heart and a brain and a mind. Because in three years, the sexuality may get a little boring, but the person will still be there. So if you marry the person rather than the body, the likelihood of a successful marriage is far deeper. When they say that all their friends are doing it, the argument is extremely simple. And that is, there are 14 million Jews in this world, there are 7 billion people in this world. Okay? I don't mean to compare, but 70 years, if we would go according to the majority, we should have been extinct three and a half thousand years ago. Abraham was one man against the whole world. Right and wrong has nothing to do with what most of my friends do. What if most of them are smoking up all day? Should I also do drugs? Doesn't make sense. You know, Kofi Annan from the UN asked a few years ago during the second of he said, is it possible that the whole world is wrong and Israel is right? And I said, oh yes, it's possible. 70 years ago they gassed one and a half million kids and nobody uttered a pips. Was the whole world right then too? And the Jews were wrong? Of course. I don't mean to compare, God forbid. My point is, if I'm going to start living my life based on what based on peer pressure, what everybody does, then uh, I have lost uh, the taste of living a deep and authentic life, true to myself. Yes? So if everything is created by Hashem, the good and the other good, as we learned today, so possibilities, is it possible that the first marriage, even though it broke up, or, or that Hashem was involved in the divorce part of it, Everything hasn't come from Hashem. Yes, absolutely yes. If everything comes from Hashem, why is there divorce? Divorce can happen for one of two reasons. Number one, sometimes to get married a second time to my right soulmate, I had to go through the divorce. Sometimes the divorce was a necessary step in the journey of one's life, painful and complex as it is, but it prepares somebody to reach their destination even though it is a difficult, a difficult task and challenge. However, sometimes we have to admit, sometimes people are married, they are soulmates, but they didn't put in the work, and that's why they get divorced. And that's also allowed by God, and ultimately from that too, we have to learn and rediscover ourselves in a deeper way. I'm going to take one last question, if there is, because our time is up. Yes? You used to work with what? Dating website, yeah. There are a lot of women Here again, how, how can I say that to somebody? How can I say that to somebody? How can I say that to somebody? But we have to our, encourage our children and our grandchildren and teach them priorities, teach them values, teach them what is important, what is not important. Teach them what they should be ready to fight for and what they should be ready to sacrifice for. I met a couple the other day, I finished a lecture and... and and they came over to speak to me, and they're married for a few years already. 
She's 38. He's 36. I asked them if they want to have children. She said, in theory, I want to have children, but I will not think about having children till I rise and climb in the ladder of her particular career because I believe that in a few years down the line, I will be in the leading management of the company and then I will be emotionally content. I'll be able to have children. And she's 38. And I looked at her and I said, you know, a career is very important. And I wish that you're not only a leading manager, you become the CEO, and then you become the, 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 above the CEO, and then you retire, and so on and so forth. But uh, remember, don't sacrifice temporary, although important, pleasures and pursuits, which are with our single opportunity in life to create something that is eternal, to create something divine, and to create something priceless. And the younger we are, the more opportunity we have. And we have to teach our youngsters to develop a sobering, wholesome, healthy perspective on these issues. Thank you very much. Uh -huh.